Well, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, we're going to be in the gospel of Luke this morning. Uh, to give you some idea of where we're going next week, Lord willing, we'll be returning to our series in Revelation. But as I uh, traditionally have done the first Sunday uh, that I preach in a new year, we have a New Year sermon uh, focused especially on what I'm praying the Lord will do, what the elders are praying the Lord will do in our church in this year. And this year we are focused on this issue of fervent and persistent prayer. We're asking the Lord God to build up a culture of prayer in our church. And we're praying that, that this sermon would be a part of that. God would use this time together in his word to do that. So uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8 is our text this morning. If you're able, please stand with me out of respect for God's word, and I will read that to us. Now he, that is Jesus, told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you, he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is our passage for us this morning. Please be seated. And please let me say, Happy New Year to all of you. Sometimes I get in this work phase and I, you know, Happy New Year. It's great to see you all this morning. It's wonderful to be back with you. Uh, we missed you last weekend. We had a great time with family, but it's wonderful to see all of you this morning and to be back with you. Well, as we think about prayer, uh, one of the things that I thought about in terms of my own life was an experience I had shortly after Missy and I arrived on the field in Central Asia as new missionaries. And we arrived just in time to join with a group of missionaries really kind of from all throughout Central Asia who are gathering together for a week of hearing from God's word and fellowshipping together. It's a general meeting that they had. Now, most of the missionaries were Americans, but there were some missionaries from other nations. Uh, and there was a portion, kind of a sizable portion, of the group that was from the nation of Korea. So several missionaries were from Korea. And for the most part, the week was really encouraging. Uh, the Bible teaching was solid. We enjoyed a good time of singing together, and we enjoyed a lot of good time of just fellowshipping with one another. But something happened during that week that was really convicting for me personally. I'd been hanging out with some American missionaries at the pool and spending time with them, and I was on my way back to the room, and as I was walking down the hall, I saw a door opened, and when I looked through the door, I saw a bunch of Korean missionaries, but they weren't just hanging out like we had been. They were on their knees praying fervently, and they were praying for their own souls, for spiritual strength or the tasks that God had entrusted to them. And they were praying for the salvation of Central Asian Muslims. And looking at that room full of praying Koreans, it occurred to me that I hadn't prayed like that with any of the American missionaries. And I began to wonder if, if maybe I was missing out on God's best for the week. Maybe God's best wasn't just good Bible teaching and times of fellowship together. Maybe, maybe God's best for us that week included what these Korean missionaries were doing, which was fervent prayer to God, 
asking him to be at work in them and through them. It, it seems like as Americans that we excel at work and we excel at strategy, but, but maybe we needed to grow in prayer. And since that time, I wish I could say that I'd mastered the spiritual discipline of prayer. I wish I could tell you that every time I go to prayer, I'm always uh, focused and I'm not distracted. I wish I could say that, that um, when I'm praying, I, I find myself just longing to begin and longing to continue. But, but even as I just prayed a few minutes ago, I often start very slowly and I finish very quickly because something has very suddenly become very, very important. And I need to stop praying so that I can do that very, very important thing that didn't seem so important before I started praying. And so I'm still a learner in the school of prayer. And perhaps some of you are as well. And if that's the case, then I'm praying that this sermon this morning from this passage will be an encouragement to me and will be an encouragement to you, uh, that we would be those that are persistent, uh, dogged even, in our pursuit of our God through prayer, uh, that we would grow through, that we would grow in kind of having a fervent and persistent prayer life. Now, we need that as individual Christians, but the reality is, is that fervent and persistent prayer isn't only for individual Christians, it's for the church as a whole. Uh, the church as a whole should be characterized by a, a deep prayerfulness. This should be something that we see in our lives together corporately. And so I'm praying that this sermon will be an encouragement to our church as a whole, that in 2023, uh, no matter what our 2022 was like, in 2023 we will be growing in this matter of prayer and especially that we would be persistent in it and fervent in it. I'm praying that God will convict us where we need to be convicted. I'm praying that he will encourage us where we need to be encouraged. I'm praying that he'll strengthen us so that we will walk in obedience to him and enter into what is truly blessing. And blessing is being with Jesus. It's spending time with the Savior. Let me give you some background on Luke before we jump into this chapter 18. Uh, the Gospel of Luke was written by Luke, who was a close associate of the Apostle Paul. And it was his task, it was his desire to put together a gospel. What's a gospel? Well, a gospel is simply a, a biography of Jesus. It's a proclamation of what God has done through Jesus to provide salvation for sinners. And Luke's purpose in particular is stated for us at the very beginning of the gospel. The very beginning, the first little section there in Luke 1. He says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I've carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So his purpose was to write an orderly account of the life of Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't a myth. He's not just a collection of stories that you can make up. There's actually a sequence to his life because he's a historical individual who lived the most remarkable of lives. He's writing this letter, this ultimately this book, for a man named Theophilus because he wanted Theophilus to have certainty about the faith that he had embraced. And of course, through the Holy Spirit, this is inspired. It is inspired for the church of all times. And so through the gospel of Luke, we can have certainty about our faith, about what we believe as well. Now, Luke's account of the life of Jesus is particularly thorough. Uh, he gives us details about the birth of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, even the resurrection of Jesus that are not found in any of the other Gospels. In our passage for study this morning in chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, it's one of those details. Here the Lord Jesus gives us a parable 
Uh, it's a, a heavenly story, excuse me, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's a parable that is not included in any other gospel. It's a parable that teaches us about the need for fervent and for persistent prayer. Now, the broader context of this parable is important because Jesus is doing something here. If you look kind of at your copy of God's Word, what comes just before this parable, the context is always important. Uh, chapter 17, verses 20 to 27, what, what Jesus is doing in that passage is he's talking about his second coming. He's giving details to his disciples about what it will be like when he comes again. So that's the broader context. Jesus is teaching about his second coming, and it becomes very clear in that teaching that there will be a period of time that will transpire before Jesus comes again, and it's during that time, okay? It's during that period of waiting between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. It's that period of time in which we live right now where believers must be prayerful, where we must be characterized by fervent and persistent prayer. So Christ gives his disciples and us this parable to teach us about our need for prayer. And as we study this passage together this morning, we're going to do a brief exposition of the parable, and then we're going to focus our hearts on five exhortations that flow out of this parable. Five exhortations. If you're taking notes, first exhortation from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, is that believers must pray. Believers must pray. Second exhortation, believers should pray persistently. Third exhortation is that believers should pray fervently. Uh, the fourth exhortation is that believers should pray confidently. And the fifth exhortation is that believers should pray urgently. So we will go through each one of those as we work our way through this passage. Let's look first at verses 1 to 8, kind of more specifically. Uh, the point of this parable it's up front in verse 1. Jesus tells us up front what the point of the parable is. He says, now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. So the parable is about prayer. It's the need that we have to persevere in prayer. It's the need that we have to not give up when we pray or not to give up prayer. Now, Jesus says, pray always there, but that doesn't indicate that Christians should literally be praying all the time. For one thing, that's impossible. For another thing, it would keep us from doing many of the other things that the Lord Jesus has called us to do. So what does pray always mean? Well, it speaks of a continual prayerfulness, a habit of prayer, a lifestyle of prayer, an ongoing dialogue with God through the day, if you will, where morning, noon, and night, prayers are rising up from our hearts and from our lips to our Heavenly Father. That's what we want. And notice at the end of verse 1 that we should not give up on prayer. And the idea most especially, again, remember the context, the idea most especially is that until Christ returns, we are not to give up on prayer. We are to continue to pray. Now, verses 2 to 5, we see the parable itself. It's a pretty simple story. In the parable, there are two characters. There's a judge, and then there's a widow. In verse 2, look at how the judge is described. He's described as one who didn't fear God or respect people. Now, Proverbs 9, verse 10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so it's very clear that this judge is not a wise judge. And the fact that people are made in God's image indicates that we must value them. That should be something that marks this church, that whether we agree or disagree with other people, if they're made in God's image, we should value them. But notice that this judge didn't respect people. In short, Jesus is letting us know that this is an ungodly and wicked judge. Now, for her part, the widow represents the oppressed. 
uh, people who are powerless in society, people who are in need in society. And again, the story of this parable is a simple one. The, the widow is wronged by another person. We don't have a lot of the details, but they don't ultimately matter. We do know that she's wronged by someone that she describes as her adversary or as her enemy. Jesus doesn't tell us how she had been wronged, and so it's kind of useless for us to speculate about the nature of the wrong she had suffered. What is clear is that she'd been seriously wronged. And we know she'd been seriously wronged because she continues to come to the judge over and over and over, seeking, seeking help, seeking justice. She kept coming to the judge day after day. And initially, look at verse 4, kind of the first part, you see that this wicked judge did nothing about the situation. He didn't care. Again, that just kind of highlights the fact that he's wicked. He's uncaring about those that God has a particular concern for. And later on, though, notice that he's moved to grant her justice. Now, why? Uh, it wasn't because his heart had changed. It wasn't because he was becoming more righteous or concerned. No, the heart of the judge remained the same. It remained wicked. But then in verse 5, you see the thing that convinced him to act. What was it? It was the persistence. It was the persistence of the widow. She kept coming. Literally, the widow wore him down through her persistence. That's what he says. The judge says, because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Now, now, in light of the actions of the judge in verses 6 and 7, the Lord Jesus, he makes his point. Really, it's an argument from lesser to greater. In effect, he says, if the wicked judge is willing to give this widow justice because she perseveres, because she continues to come to him, well, how much more will God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? The point he's making is obvious. God is not a wicked judge. He's a good father, and he cares for his children. And if a wicked judge is willing to act because of persistence, well, we should, we should be persistent in prayer. Why? Because we're not dealing with a wicked judge. We're dealing with a good father who cares for his children. Now, most especially when Jesus says that God will grant them justice, he's referring to ultimate justice. On the day when Christ returns and puts down his enemy, and rescues his people, establishes his kingdom. And so we should continue to pray, come Lord Jesus. Think about it. For 2,000 years, the church has been persevering and praying, come Lord Jesus. And we need to continue to persevere in praying, come Lord Jesus. Why? Because that day is coming. Jesus will return. It's also true though, that God will answer every prayer that his people pray. And I think this is important. Sometimes God says yes. What we're praying would bring glory to him, and it would be good for our souls. And so he says, yes. And sometimes he says, no, because he knows it wouldn't be good for our souls. And sometimes he says, wait, but he always answers the prayers of his people. So we should pray. Now, now look at the end of verse 8. Notice how Jesus concludes. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, these words tell us that when Christ returns, the world is not going to be marked by the kind of perseverance in prayer that would indicate great faith. Uh, Jesus is here telling us, he's letting us know that actually when he comes, the world will be mostly godless and unbelieving. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, true faith will be found very scarce at the end of the world. Our Lord teaches that there will be comparatively very few true believers upon earth when he comes again. True faith will be found as rare as it was in the days of Noah, when only eight persons entered the ark, and in the days of Lot, when only four persons left Sodom. 
That's not very encouraging, is it? But looking at the trajectory of the world, it is very believable, isn't it? Isn't it true that the world is rapidly growing darker? It is. Well, this is what the Lord Jesus is teaching us. So looking at verses 1 to 8, you have the Lord Jesus teaching on prayer through this parable, the need for prayer and his encouragement for us to pray as a result of his teaching. Now, for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to kind of dive back into this passage, and I want us to focus our hearts on five exhortations that flow out of this passage. And the first is that believers must pray. Look at verse 1. Now, he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. So note the word need there. In the Greek, this verse can literally be translated, and he was telling them a parable that it is necessary always to pray and not become discouraged. Uh, So setting up the parable, Jesus tells us at the very front, at the very front, he tells us that we have a need here. There's a necessity here for us. Those who follow him must pray. We have a need. Now, because the greater context of this parable is, again, the second coming of the Lord, it indicates that we will have a need to pray until the very end of time, until Christ comes again. So here's my question. Why is prayer necessary? Why do we need to pray? Why is it important for us as the people of God to pray? Well, let me give you four reasons very briefly. The first reason, we need to pray because we lack power. Uh, Until the Lord Jesus comes, we have a mission. We're not aimless as the people of God. We have a very clearly defined mission. And the mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That is our mission. The problem is we, in and of ourselves, lack the power we need to complete that mission. Jesus says in John 15, verse 5, Apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. And so, until he comes, we have the need to continue to pray that God would give us power to accomplish the mission that he has given us. A second reason we need to pray is because we lack provision. So this goes along with that. But in addition to power, we need wisdom, don't we? And we often lack wisdom. We also need other resources that are necessary to accomplish the tasks that the Lord has given us. And so we need to pray and ask him for wisdom and for those resources. For instance, we should pray, Lord, the the fields are ripe for harvest. Send forth more workers into your harvest. More resources are necessary. And so we continue to pray, asking the Lord to be the one that will provide his church with the resources necessary to accomplish the task. A third reason, we need to pray because our enemies are stronger than we are. If you're just beginning the Christian walk, this is really important for you to understand. You have three enemies in this world primarily, and your enemies are the world and the flesh and the devil. And the world is this system that Satan has set up that entices humanity away from God. And we find it strangely enticing as well. And and the flesh is the enemy within that makes us desire things that would dishonor God. Even things that we hate, we find this war within us. And for some reason, we love what we should hate. And then the devil, Satan, well, he's the ruler of this world. And you see, each one of these enemies is stronger than we are. And so we have need to pray each and every day of our Christian lives, Lord, do not bring us into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. There's a fourth reason why we need to pray. We need to pray because it's the nature of Christians to pray. Now, by God's grace, I have four children, and I was there for the birth of each one of my children. And what happens after a child is born is that the doctor takes the child and holds the child up, and the next thing you know, there is this piercing cry of disapproval. It is the nature of the baby to cry and voice complaint about being born. He doesn't like it. It's the nature of babies to cry. Friends, it's the nature of Christians to pray. 
one of the first things that will happen to you when you follow Jesus is that you will begin to pray. You'll begin to talk to God as your heavenly father. It was that way in the life of the apostle Paul. Here he is on the road to Damascus. Here he is. He has it in his heart to persecute and to imprison and even to kill those who follow Jesus according to the way as Christianity was known at that point. But the Lord Jesus shows up in power and he is converted. And what does he do? He goes on to Damascus and for the next three days he is in prayer and fasting. And and then when the Lord goes to Ananias and tells him, I want you to come and heal Paul, what does he tell him? He says, behold, he's praying. He's letting Ananias know that Paul is living according to his new nature. And that's true of all Christians. You see, Christians must pray because it's the nature of Christians to pray. And that says something very significant. Actually, it's a warning. Friend, if you don't pray, you're not a Christian. You need to understand that. You will live according to your nature. You will do that. And so if it's not in you to pray, you have no concern about praying to God, you're just perfectly happy to live your own life, you don't want to spend time with him or talk to him, it just indicates that you do not possess the life of God within. That's what it means. That's what it means. Being a Christian isn't about being religious or going to church or being born into a nation where most people respond that they are Christians on a Gallup poll. That's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be someone who possesses the life of God within It's someone who is born from above. It's someone who has the Holy Spirit of God, a spirit of adoption that that teaches us to cry out, Abba, Father. And if you don't have that, friends, you're not a Christian. You don't have the real thing. You've got a counterfeit. And what you need is the real thing. And praise God, the real thing is available. Robert Murray McShane put it this way. He said, Christ loved secret prayer. Ah, you are no Christian if you do not love secret prayer. Oh, brethren, a prayerless man is an unconverted man. So in verse 1, we see that Christians must pray. There's a second exhortation. Believers must, or excuse me, should pray persistently. Look at verse 1 and then verse 3. Verse 1 again. Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. And now look at verse 3. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So looking at this parable, just kind of on the face of it, you see very clearly that one of the main themes is this issue of persistence. In verse 1, Jesus says, we must pray always and not give up. And then in verse 3, the widow embodies this persistence by coming to the judge over and over and over until he grants her justice. And the obvious implication is that believers should be characterized by persistent prayer. But what is persistent prayer? Well, look again at the example of the widow. What did she do? Well, persistent prayer, it's continual prayer that never gives up. And that's what the widow did. She came to the judge over and over and over. She came continually. And notice that she never gave up until she achieved the goal of getting justice. And that is what our prayers are to be like. Now, Christ Fellowship 2023 looms before us. And no one in this room has any idea what will happen. The news tells us every day that there are all kinds of dread possibilities like another pandemic, economic recession, political turmoil. And you know what? All of those are very real possibilities for the year 2023. We would be fools not to acknowledge that. And if we're not careful, we will be mentally consumed by all of these dread possibilities. Friends, I'm praying for something better for Christ Fellowship in 2023. 
I'm praying that we will fix our mind on the mission that's been given to us. And the mission we've been given is to what? To make disciples of Jesus Christ. So I'm praying that God will help us to do that. But if we're going to do that, if we're going to accomplish the task that has been given to us, we must be marked by prayer, by a continual prayer that doesn't give up, by this persistent prayer that we see modeled for us in the life of the widow here. So by God's grace, let's be a church that's marked by continual prayer. That starts with each one of us, members of the church individually. It starts with our own walk with God as we day by day spend time with him in prayer, as we make it a priority. Uh, And let me encourage you, find a specific time to pray, set that side apart, don't let anything get in the way, pray then, and then from that, pray throughout the rest of the day. Spend time with God. But it's more than just individuals. Again, it's our Bible studies, it's our community groups. Uh, It's when just two or three of our members gather together to to talk with one another, to hold one another accountable, or to read a good book together. We should be praying on Sunday mornings. We should be praying corporately as a church. I find it very easy when someone else is praying the pastoral prayer to mentally check out. I'm hearing the words, but I'm not laboring in prayer. Maybe you've discovered that in your own heart. Well, corporately, we should be praying together during the service and fixing our minds in that way and then in a special way On the third Sunday evening of every month, we have a corporate prayer service, and I just want to encourage you to come to that. I want to encourage you to come to that so that we as a church can corporately pray together. Uh, God will use that time. It's something we're trying to grow in as a church. I know we're all busy, and I'm not here to guilt you this morning. This is an invitation to spend time with Jesus with your brothers and sisters, and I just want to invite you to come. But if we are to do that, if we are to be faithful, continual, persistent in prayer, we cannot give up. Isn't it easy to give up on prayer? Isn't that easy to do? We can begin praying for good things, like that God would help us to see more people saved in 2023. That's a great prayer. But then if we don't immediately see something, we we can stop praying. We can listen to the devil who tells us it's worthless, it doesn't matter, it doesn't mean something. Uh, Prayer is powerless. And we can become discouraged and we can stop. Well, we must not do that. You see, the temptation will come. And when it comes, may God give us the grace to remember the widow in this parable who continued to come and continued to ask and continued to seek. She didn't give up. There's a third exhortation flowing out of this passage. It's that believers should pray fervently. So look at verse 3 and then verse 5. Verse 3, And a widow in that town kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And in verse 5, Yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Now, how do you imagine that this widow came to the judge? Do you think that she just quietly came up and said, Kind sir, I need justice. And then when he did nothing, did she just quietly turn around and walk away? Uh, No, when you read this parable, it becomes very clear that that's not at all what she was doing. It's pretty clear that she was passionate. Uh, She was pestering. She was wearing him out. She was imploring. She was even demanding justice over and over and over. She was fervent in her demands until she literally wore the judge out. Now, that's a picture of the kind of prayers we should be praying to God. Not cold and disinterested prayers, but focused and fervent prayers where we are engaged from the heart. After all, if we don't actually want what we're praying for, why should God pay any attention to us? Well, sadly, if you're like me, you prayed many cold and disinterested prayers in your life. 
Sadly, if you're like me in your morning quiet times, you found it very easy to go through the motions of praying without actually praying. And you don't realize until a few minutes in that you're not actually praying. You're thinking about something else, what it shouldn't be. Instead, when we pray, we should take ourselves at hand. I'm trying to learn how to do this. Pray for me that I will. Take yourself in hand and think about what we're doing. We're approaching the God of eternity. He's the king of glory. Uh, and what a privilege it is for us to pray. But then think about the fact that he's our father. So he's, he's invited us to come. And so we don't have to come fearfully. We can come boldly. And, and then with that truth in our hearts, we, we go to him in prayer. And we, we ask that, that he would work, that he would help, that he would glorify his name through us. Not praying cold and disinterested prayers, but praying fervent prayers. Not going through the motions but truly praying. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about fervent prayer. He said, some people's prayers have no work in them. Prayer that prevails with God is a real working man's prayer. It is prayer where the petitioner like Samson shakes the gates of mercy and labors to pull them up rather than be denied an interest. We do not want fingertip prayers that barely touch the burden. We need shoulder prayers that bear the load of earnestness and are not to be denied their desire. We do not want those dainty runaway knocks at the doors of mercy that some give when they perform for others at prayer meetings. We ask for the knocking of a man who means to stop at mercy's gate till it opens and all his need shall be supplied. So by God's grace in 2023, let's pray fervent, kind of mercy gate shaking prayers and trust God to answer those prayers. A fourth exhortation, believers should pray confidently. Uh, This, again, on the surface is one of the things that are most clear of this passage. Look at verse 6 and 7. Jesus says, Then the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you, he will swiftly grant them justice. Now, this is one of the most beautiful truths about this passage. And you see it in verse 6 and 7. God is nothing like the wicked judge. He's not like that. He's not unconcerned. He doesn't drag his feet. Uh, He doesn't only answer the prayers of his people because his people wear him down to make him do something he doesn't care to do. That's not how God is. The testament of the Bible is that God is generous and he's kind and he's good and he hears our prayers and he's concerned and he wants us to come and ask him. And he says, you don't have because you don't ask. And he invites us to come and to pray and to ask. It's the kind of God that we serve. And that's what Jesus points out. He says, you know, will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? And the expected answer there is, of course he will. Of course he'll grant justice. Of course he'll respond to their prayers. Now, again, most especially in this passage, grant them justice. It's talking about what will happen when Christ returns and defeats all of his enemies and he rescues his people and he brings in his kingdom. So again, the primary focus of this parable is eschatological. But it's equally true that God stands ready to answer all the prayers of his elect. Who are they? Well, they are the people upon whom he placed his love in eternity past. The elect are those he's chosen for salvation from before the very foundation of the earth. Now, God doesn't always say yes to our prayers, does he? I mean, how many prayers have you prayed where it seemed like nothing happened? I prayed a lot like that. And there's a reason. God's a good father, and he knows that many of the things we ask for in prayer, 
would not be good for us spiritually. So sometimes he says no. But he always responds. Sometimes he says, wait. Why? Because he wants us to pray. He wants us to come into his presence more and more, asking him more and more to do what he ultimately will do in his good time. And so we wait, and we wait in fervent and persistent prayer. And often, often, isn't it true? Often he says, yes, sometimes I'm just surprised. I'll pray for something, and it'll be a, a pathetic prayer. You know, someone will tell me about a trouble that someone in the church has, and I'll throw up a three-second prayer, you know, bless Betsy. And, uh, and he does. And it's amazing. And then I want to have prayed more than a three-second bless Betsy prayer, but, but praise God. He said yes, right? He said yes. He answered the prayer. And it's encouraging. It encourages us to pray more. Why? Our God responds. He never ignores our prayer. So when Satan whispers in your ear, God doesn't care about you and your prayers are worthless, he's lying. That's what Satan does. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. So when he tells you something that doesn't line up with scripture, you know he's lying to you. And what scripture says is that God is a good father and he cares. And so pray. So two applications. Let's repent of harboring wrong thoughts about God. Some of us need to repent this morning because for too long we have viewed God like this unjust and wicked judge who doesn't actually care, who just kind of drags his feet, who maybe he answers the prayers of other people, but he doesn't really care about me. He doesn't answer my prayers. He's not good to me. No, the evil judge in the parable is unconcerned. He's unkind. He's even stingy. God is none of those things. He's gracious and good, and faithful. That's the testimony of Scripture. And you see it most, especially at the cross, what God comes into the world in order to experience death on behalf of his people so that they might be rescued. The eternal Son of God did that. As a church, let's pray. So here's the application. Let's pray like God is a good father. Right? So we get it into our minds. God is a good father. The one I'm approaching in prayer is a good father. And so I'm going to pray like that. And I'm going to trust that he's going to say yes, or he's going to say no, or he's going to say wait. But I know he's good. And I'm going to pray like he's good. And I'm going to mean it. And I'm going to trust him to be faithful. Let's pray bold, God-exalting, confident prayers in 2023. Let's pray for more salvation through our evangelistic efforts for more opportunities to share the gospel, for eyes to see them, for boldness to take them. Let's pray in particular for our children. Let's pray that our children, whether they're young or old, that they would come to faith in Christ. Let's pray for struggling marriages, that they'd be restored, for wayward children, that they would repent, that families would be restored. Let's pray that there would be no bitterness, there would be no brokenness of relationship in our church. I'm unaware of any. I praise God for that. But let's pray that there would be none of that. And that we would instead love one another. And when we sin against one another, that we would humbly reconcile with one another. Let's pray that our church would make an impact on the campus of William & Mary this year. It matters that we're in a town that has a college where 7,000 undergraduates gather, many of whom are going to have great impact in this world. That matters. And it's not happenstance. God put us here. And we have an opportunity here to impact that college. Let's pray that God would help us do that. What a joy it would be to see many young men and women come to faith in Christ because of the evangelistic efforts of our church.
Let's pray that our short-term mission trips to Guinea and North Africa and Central Asia would be used of God in this coming year to bless those workers we're spending time with, uh, and that we'd be able to do fruitful, meaningful work there that would be an encouragement to them and would glorify God. And let's pray that God would give us a new building. We have been praying for that. The point of this parable is what? Keep praying. Keep asking God to do it. And let's pray that he would do it in a way that magnifies his generosity and his wisdom and his goodness. We should confidently pray these prayers and others like this because we're praying to a good father. And so may God help us do that in 2023. There's a final exhortation. Believers should pray urgently. Look at the end of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, again, in verse 8, Jesus is speaking of what things will be like when he returns upon the earth. And while he sounds incredibly confident in verse 6 and 7 that God is a God who will hear the prayers of his elect and he will answer those prayers, when you get to the end of verse 8, he doesn't sound very confident at all about the state of the faith of the world when he returns, does he? Actually, no, he indicates that the kind of faith that leads to persevering prayer will be lacking, that faith will be at a low ebb. And it is true that faith, true faith, is at a low ebb in America. I don't think I need to defend that statement, but I can. Friends, pornography is everywhere. It's everywhere. Last week, I saw a pickup truck driving down Interstate 64, and on the side of a truck was a large advertisement for a well-known pornographic website. And he's just proudly advertising that. 20 years ago, it would have been utterly unthinkable. Uh, increasingly, being a committed Bible-believing Christian in the public sphere puts you in the crosshair of a culture that is determined to act like each person is a god unto himself. And so you can lose your job, you can lose your promotion, you can lose your tenure at major corporations or colleges if you simply state what the Bible clearly teaches on any number of social issues. That's simply true. That's how it is. Tragically, faith is at a low ebb in many churches as well. Um, the risk of sounding like a bit of a curmudgeon, I think it's true. Many worship services at churches look more like a Las Vegas rock concert than a gathering of God's people. It's just true. That, that is, that's true. There are lots and lots of songs, but I think it's very telling that there is precious little or if any prayer. It's a lot of music, a lot of smoke, a lot of lasers. I'm not saying that smoke and music and lasers is wrong. I'm just saying it doesn't look any different than a rock concert. And I have a little bit of concern about that. Because when we gather together as the people of God, it's not a worship experience. That's not what we're doing. You're, you're not here to sit in a chair and watch people do stuff for you. You're the body. You're here to serve one another in love, to build up the body in love, to speak the truth in love. And we do that before the service, and we do that after the service. We're talking about committed love here, where I come to church not to sit back and experience something, but I come to work. And that's why we call it a worship service, right? It's a service. We're serving God. And by His grace, we're serving others as well. Many pastors sound more like life coaches than heralds of the gospel. Evangelism is lacking because we love our personal comfort more than we love telling people about Jesus who they desperately need to know. 
True faith is at a low ebb in America, but it does not have to be at a low ebb in Christ's fellowship. In fact, it must not be that. It must not be that. And we need God to give us his grace in 2023 that it would not be that case with us, but instead that this would be a year of fervency and growth and passion and commitment and pursuit and service and looking for opportunities to make much of Christ. This year is an opportunity, 2023. The world wants it to be an opportunity for us to go day by day looking at the latest dread headline so that we can constantly live in fear. That is an option for your 2023. Friend, let me encourage you not to live that way. Jesus wins. And you have a mission. And the mission is to make disciples. And it doesn't matter at all what happens to you or your health. It doesn't. Because your soul is safe with God. And you can lose everything you own and God will provide for you. And you can get an illness. And you can die. And you'll go be with Jesus forever and ever and ever. Friend, we have everything we need to live differently. I'm praying we will. I'm praying we will. That we'll live differently. That we won't think like this herd of humanity that is constantly terrified. Because we're saved. We're saved. Oh, may God help us. May God help us be about the work of the ministry. May God help us. It's an opportunity to see God move in dramatic ways as we together ask him to do so. Remember that and don't give up part. Praying that God would move in dramatic ways. In our, but then we don't see anything in January. We're like, well, I'm done with that. God's not going to answer that prayer. No, we pray throughout 2023 saying, God, move in dramatic ways in Christ's fellowship. Help us grow. Help us be like Jesus. Help us reach this world. We want to be a bright light in an increasingly dark world. And friend, don't you feel inadequate for that? But you, but you see, you, you are, and I am. We are inadequate. But Jesus isn't. And it's his life being lived through us by his spirit in this year. May God do all of this and much more. Now, friends, before we, before we conclude the service, let me say something to you. If you're, if you're not following Christ, you're hearing this is, in many ways, this parable is directly talking to believers about this act of prayer where we're just talking with our Father, and we, we understand that you don't have that relationship. We understand, so this can just go past you. So I want to talk to you this morning because you haven't yet followed Jesus. Perhaps, perhaps you're just beginning to feel the darkness of this world in a way that you haven't before, and you're not sure what to do about it. Perhaps you're just sensing for the first time that there's a darkness within you and you're not sure what to do about it. Well, friend, we have good news for you. We have the best possible news. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the Savior that God has provided for sinners like me, like everyone around you this morning, and friend, like you. You see, the Bible's so clear about who we are. The Bible says we're made in the image of God. That's why man is able to do noble and good things. And yet that image has been marred because our first parents rebelled against God in the garden and sinned. And we sinned in them. And because we come from them, we've inherited that same nature of rebellion against God, which doesn't look like I write a best-selling book about why I hate God. It just looks like I live each and every day as if I am God, as if what I want is the most important thing. And I have no concern about the God of eternity, the one who keeps me alive each and every moment. Instead, I'm just living for myself and pursuing my own things. Friends, friends it's that rebellion against God who the Bible calls sin. And it takes different forms. Sometimes it looks quite secular. Sometimes it looks quite religious. 
You see, what, what the Bible teaches is not that we're supposed to try to be good enough for God, that we're to clean ourselves up, that we're to read the Bible more, that we're to pray, that we're to be nice Christian-y people. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, believe on the one that the Father has sent. That's Jesus. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. He's the Savior. How did he save us? He came into this world, the eternal Son of God, and he lived a perfect life because you and I have failed to live a perfect life. He did that with intentionality, always fulfilling the law of God. And then he willingly went to the cross as a sacrifice, bearing in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead. And that's the gospel. That's the good news of what Christ has done. And then the Bible tells us there's a way to respond to that message. And the way we respond to that message is by turning. I acknowledge my sin before God, uh, my rebellion against him, And I'm going to turn from that, and now I'm going to put all of my trust in Christ. I'm going to rest on Christ the same way each one of you is resting on your chair this morning. Putting all of your weight on Jesus, saying it's his perfect life that matters. It's his sacrificial death that matters. I'm going to put myself in his hands. I'm going to cry out for mercy from him. And he's going to grant me eternal life because that's the promise. All who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus, they receive eternal life now. And that life goes on forever. And all of their sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And they are adopted as sons and daughters of God. And you see, friend, it's a free gift. You cannot earn it, so don't try to earn it. Oh, I have conversations with people, and they say, I'm trying to be a Christian. You can't try to be a Christian. That's not the point. The point is, trust in Jesus. Put your hope in him and him alone, and God will save you. Oh, if you want to talk with someone about that, I would love to talk with you after the sermon. You're, you're surrounded by people who would love to talk with you about the gospel, the good news of Jesus that we just talked about this morning. Friend, you will find, if you trust in Jesus, that because he is the light of the world, he will, he will be light for you. He will become your all. And you will never regret following him. You never will. Well, we've heard five exhortations about prayer. Believers must pray. Believers should pray persistently. Believers should pray fervently. Believers should pray confidently. And believers should pray urgently. And as I look at those truths, I confess to you that I'm still a learner in this school of prayer. And I think many of us are. And that means that 2023 is an opportunity for us to press further into our relationship with God through prayer. And to not give up, and to not become discouraged, and to not grow weary, but instead, like this persistent widow, to keep on, and keep on, and keep on. And God will accomplish good things in this church in this coming year. May he do it. Let's pray.